Well, good morning. You, you came back. Well, thank you, John, for that. John has such a gift of framing things, of, of all the people that I know. You know, some people's minds, they work in certain ways, and John's, he sees things, he, he arranges things. He has this incredible gift of, of finding words, and quite often they rhyme, which is really amazing. Um, but really, that's a, it's a helpful gift, and it is truly an adventure that we're on, and just being here this time reminds me of that, that that uh, I, I showed up in Atlanta one day and uh, met this guy, John, and then a year later was in California and met this guy, Andrew, and now I'm here. And it's just it's amazing how the kingdom works when, when we submit ourselves to it. I think here's my image of, the, of life in the kingdom. It's like, this, it's like this incredible, thank you, yo, Adrian, uh, that's from Rocky. It's like this incredible uh, river that's just this mighty river that's flowing, and, and we just do well to just get on it and, and see where it takes us. And that's, I love that, that image, you know. It's not, not the motorboat where I've got to make it happen. I'm just on this river, and it's just going to incredible places. And, and that's fascinating to, to me, and, and I love all that that is. Well, I want to I talk th- this morning a little bit uh, about beauty and, and and how it intersects with our lives, and I want to give an example of that in my own life and journey. <clears throat> but I realize that you've been sitting a bit and so forth. And, and I read this study that I thought was fascinating uh, and sad, really, that that four out of five people um, really dislike how they look. They're just very critical of their physical appearance. That's a big number, isn't it? Four out of five. Like, they don't, I don't like my whatever, and I don't feel that comfortable about my... Anyway, so what I'd like us to do, just, just to just get the blood flowing, if you would just stand up, would you... I love the obedience that you just... I just... I have the mic. I guess you'll do it. And just turn to someone near you and just say this to them. Say, you're the best-looking person I've ever seen. So last night, I, I quoted uh, A.W. Tozier, who said, the most important thing about a person is what they think about God. And uh, I shared a little bit about myself in, the, in that and, and how important it is. But very briefly, my own journey is uh, I grew up a Christmas Easter Methodist. I referred to myself as that because we went to church twice a year. And I didn't care for the church much. But the, after I graduated from high school, uh, do you call it high school? You do? Oh, good for you. Uh, anyway, before college, do you call it college? Uni. You shortened that as well. Anyway, uh, and so, uh, so that summer I ended up uh, hanging out with a guy who was a, a part-time evangelist. He was a fireman and then a part-time evangelist, which he was saving souls left and right. Anyway, but he, his name was Pat, and, and we just read the Gospels together. And then I, we read uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity together. And I was just so enthralled with Jesus. I just thought, this Jesus is amazing. I'd never really encountered anything like it. So I was really struck by, I would later learn, I, was, I didn't have the word at the time, but really the beauty of Jesus. And so I was moved by that. And so I, I said, I just want to live life with this guy. So I, I had what you would call a conversion experience. But then I went to college, and, or uni, and, and I, I got involved in a ministry, and a guy who ran this ministry at this 
university, um, wanted to find out if I was saved. So over coffee, he said, tell me your story. And I told him the story about the fireman and the Lewis and I mean, Jesus. And he said, that's a lovely story, but you're not saved. And I said, wow, I well, what is saved? I don't even know the word. What, what does that mean? I'm a, I grew up a Methodist. We didn't even say it. So anyway, um, so he explained to me that I didn't really understand how awful I was and how mad God was and that what Jesus had done for me. And, if I, and, and then I had to make a decision to claim him as the one who saved me from the wrath of God. And he had a pamphlet, so he seemed legit. You know, when you, when you have literature, you're just like, he has literature. Anyway, so he gave me the pamphlet, and, and there was a prayer, and I prayed the prayer. But what happened to me, and I didn't know it at the time, was as a young person, a new believer, uh, I was adopting a narrative about God that I talked about last night, which is, I think is a distortion. It's really, it's a reduction of substitutionary atonement that leads to a distortion, because reductions always lead to distortion. So if you try to reduce atonement to that little thing, you're probably going to tell the wrong story, and that's what happened. So uh, I took that story with me throughout college. I took it with me, oddly, through seminary. I took it into the ministry. I preached some sermons I regret uh, from that perspective. And so when I went to the, to the place where I have been for 30 years as a college professor, when I went there, it was my second year there that I secretly began to want to leave the ministry entirely. I just, uh, that's the thing about, right, the, the, uh, these ideas run and can also ruin our lives. And so I didn't really know why, but I just was like, I didn't like being a Christian really under that arrangement, that, that view of God. And so I began to pray that God would, uh, I said, look, I'm either quitting, I'm just going to chuck it, and, and I think I'd be okay maybe selling insurance or something. There's something else I can do. But I'm going to leave it unless you do something. And I think God, you know, honors those kinds of prayers. You know, the, the, old, the old question, where's God's address? Well, at the end of your rope. So I was at the end of my rope, and God was there and said, all right. And so God began bringing people into my life that were really significant. One was Brendan Manning. And Brennan and I became good friends. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he was the first person to really confront me. He looked right into my soul one day over, like, dessert. It was, we're having a meal together. And he just went, you don't believe God loves you as you are. I said, well, no. You know, I quoted scripture. Yes, I do. No, he said, you don't. And I really, I broke down. I said, you're right, I don't. So Brennan was really hugely helpful. And, and a number of other things began to happen that really helped me begin to shift away. And as I said, I really didn't think about what it was, but really it was beauty all along that was driving it. And, you know, Dostoevsky's, that famous line, beauty will save the world. Uh, and so that's, that's what God was going, going to use. And so the next step of that journey really for me happened when I was reading about the life of someone who I really admired. Her name is Simone Weil. Um, it looks like Whale, W-E-I-L is how you say her name. But Simone Weil, uh, early 20th century, she grew up in a, in a, grew up in a, in a Jewish home in England, and she uh, was, was an atheist, really. And she had rejected her the Judaism. She rejected all forms of religion. And, but she was living this crazy life searching for God. And uh, as the story goes, she ended up actually converting to Christianity when she read a poem. And so I'm reading this story, and I'm going, must have been some poem, you know? <laughs> you know? 
And so uh, the poem was, it's called Love Three, Love Roman numeral three, uh, by a guy named George Herbert. And I didn't know anything about Herbert. Uh, I mean, I read like maybe in a college literature class, one of his poems, but I didn't know much about him. Anyway, so I went to our library at the university and I grabbed a, a collection of Herbert's poems and I found Love Three. And uh, it absolutely rocked my world. And so I, I want to just kind of walk through the poem. It's not long. And just say a word about, about the poem. Because it was really, I, I refer to it as theology interrupted by a poem in George Herbert's poem, Love Three. So here's the poem. Love, love bade me welcome, or bade me welcome in Old English. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back. Let me just pause and say, uh, what Herbert's going to do throughout the poem, love is God. So you could just put God where love is, if you want to understand the poem. Back to 1 John 4, 8, God is love. So you could just, it really is, God bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back. So right away, it's this, this sort of image of Isaiah in the temple, coming into the presence of God. And, and when you're there in the holiness of God, your soul draws back like, woe is me. So love welcomes me in, yet my soul drew back. Why? Guilty of dust and sin. I'm mortal. There's the dust. I don't belong here. Guilty of sin. Like I know my sin. John talked about the darkness and the places within us that we all recognize. But then notice this next line. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack. Quick-eyed love. Well, right away I went, I'd never thought about you see, it's such a be- that's what poetry can do, the brevity of words. Quick-eyed love. Can you think of God that way? Not as the giant, unblinking, cosmic stare who's mad. But God is quick-eyed love. You just get this image of God. You come into God's presence and you, you, you draw back. And quick-eyed love just looks right into you. Quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in drew nearer to me. So what happens? The soul backs away and goes, I what was me? And, and quick-eyed love draws nearer and says, oh. Sweetly questioning. What a powerful little word. Sweetly questioning. Not, why have you failed with your life? That's the voice of God for a lot of people, right? But instead, sweetly questioning. Oh, do you lack anything? Right away, you just you feel this is a different kind of God. Like, woe is me. Quick-eyed love jumps right in. Do, do you lack something? A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. What is it that I lack? I'm not worthy. That's what I lack, God. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And love said, or God said, you shall be he. Now, that's not to take the the future tense. Like, one day you might be. It's a declaration. I'm not worthy to be here. I say you are. That's what he's saying. And this is who you are. You're worthy. Wait a minute, the soul says, no, 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 wait a minute. Me, you know, the unkind, the ungrateful... Wait, you talking to me? You know who I am, the unkind, the ungrateful? 
Ah, my dear Lord, God, I can't even look at you. I have to avert my eyes. I, I, I'm not worthy to be here. I can't even look on you. And love took my hand. God takes my hand and smiling. There's back to last night. God's the most joyous being in the universe. Can you imagine God looking at you and smiling? And smiling did reply, who, who made the eyes but I? Do you see what's happening? It's like, I can't even look at you. And God goes, oh, you mean with the eyes that I made? This is great, you know? He says, it's brilliant. Okay, so you see it's a dance going back and forth. And it goes on. So what's the, next, the soul's next reply? Well, truth, Lord, okay, okay, you made my eyes, but I've ruined them, I've marred them. There you go, even worse. Yeah, you made my eyes, you made everything, and I've made a wreck of it. Truth. Let my shame, there's the key word, because that's what the soul's dealing with is shame. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Just let me be. I'm awful. Just let, it, let me go. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. See, now, what, what's interesting here to note is that God isn't saying, oh, you didn't sin. You haven't marred your eyes. See, that's that God who's soft on sin. This is a God who's, no, oh, yeah, no, I acknowledge that. But do, do you know who bore the blame? See, when I read that line, I think Octavia Spencer's wrist coming out with the marks. Oh, yes, you've made a wreck of you. Oh, did you see my, my hands and my wrist? <laughs> All right, what's the next response of the soul? My dear, then I will serve. Isn't that the next response? Because it's sort of like, it's, it's sort of like this, this checkmate that's happening with God. God's keep, oh, yeah, your eyes, I made those. Yeah, but I'm a mess. Oh, didn't I bear the blame? You see, going on. And then finally, okay, okay, I'll serve you. I'll go die on the mission field. Because that's probably the best thing I can do right now. I'll live some horrible life in sacrifice to all you've done. That's what we do, right? And then, last word from God. Sit down. (laughs) Sit down. Let's eat. I don't want you to serve. Oh, maybe you can. We'll talk about that later. I want a relationship with you. Sit down. Let's eat. Taste all that I have to give. So I did sit and eat. I finished the reading uh, of this poem sitting in a little carol by myself at the university, and I just wept. God used a poem to widen my understanding of who God is. And I thought of Simone Weil, 
who probably a hundred years before read that poem and had the same experience. And then I did a little bit of research into George Herbert and what a fascinating man he was. George Herbert lived at the time of King James, of the King James Bible, King James, and served in Parliament and had a notable career in politics. And at a certain point grew disillusioned and said, I just want to be in the church. I want to serve the church and became a pastor. And he served in this little church, this sort of inconsequential little church in England and was there for about five years. And he wrote poetry privately just for himself. And he contracted a major illness that he sensed would be the end of his life. And so uh, as he was dying, he said to a friend, I've written a number of poems. I have them in a satchel. I'd like you to just take them. And if you think they might be of help to someone. Then do with them what you will. I'm so grateful that his friend didn't throw him in the fire. That he took the beauty of his words and had them published and that people like Simone Weil and me and many others encounter this and have our, our theology completely interrupted. So I'd never really encountered a God who was smiling, quick-eyed love, a God who could say that this God bore the blame, but not in a way that increased my shame, but was inviting me into this incredible life. And that's what beauty has the power to do. Beauty is one of the three transcendentals, and it, uh, it, God's designed the human person in such a way that we long for these transcendentals, and so I want to um, talk about that a little bit. So the transcendentals are beauty, goodness, and truth, the triad of these three things. And beauty, uh, Thomas Aquinas defined beauty as that which when seen pleases, which I really love the brevity of that. And if you know anything about Thomas Aquinas, I suspect there's probably a few in this room who do, know that Aquinas wrote about 30 volumes. He was like one of the most prolific writers in, in history, not just Christian history. The dude wrote. And he wrote, I mean, he would take one theological question and write 50 pages. And, and then at the end of his life, he had an encounter with God that was so profound, he said, after that experience, all my writing is nothing but straw compared to a real encounter with a living God. And I went, you made a lot of straw, man. <laughs> 50 volumes of straw. But So you wouldn't think that Aquinas would define something with such brevity, but beauty is that which when seen pleases. And it really works that way. Because the thing about beauty is, it is a, there's a kind of mystery to it. There's a little bit of a science, but there's a mystery to it in that when you encounter something that's beautiful, you know it. It's just like, ah, it's pleasing. So when Aquinas says, beauty is that which when seen pleases, 
Well, it makes sense to me. And that's its effect on us. Is, is, um, and we're designed for beauty. We, um, of, of all the creatures, have an aesthetic, be careful, not aesthetic, an aesthetic dimension to our souls that really longs for beauty. And beauty, as it was intended, is meant to open us to God. Because beauty is designed always to be penultimate, not ultimate. So when we encounter beauty, what we ought to do is, because it's penultimate, is not worship the beautiful thing, but worship the God who created it. That's why beauty is penultimate. And that's a mistake humans make. We see something beautiful, and then we want to focus on it. And that's when you create an idol. So beauty is, is designed when we encounter it, when we say, wow. So, so someone, and it happens to us, right? You see, you see an incredible sunset. And you, you, maybe you, you're stopped in your tracks by it. You just, you know, I don't know, if you're doing something else, and then you look and go, oh, wow. That's what beauty does, makes you say, wow. And you look at it, and you just go, that's an amazing sunset, and then walk away. Well, that's, that's a form of blasphemy, actually. Because what you're supposed to do is, when you see the sunset, is go, wow, and praise you, God. That's what, that's what beauty is designed to do. It's not meant to be the focal point. And now... My only quibble with, with Aquinas' definition of beauty as that which when seen pleases is it only takes in, in one of the, the senses, which is sight. But you can say it to everything. Beauty is that which when heard pleases, touched, smelled. All, so we have these five senses that God's given us, and every one of the senses are aesthetically designed. So all of the senses are, are meant to take in beauty. And create it, because I'm going to talk about the metabolism of beauty. You're meant not just to experience it, but to actually become it and then produce it. But that's the metabolism I'll get to in a minute. But, so for now, that is, beauty is that which when seen, heard, touched, felt, smelt. When we encounter it, we say, wow. And then goodness is that which when experienced benefits. So the word good, bene in the Latin, means it's beneficial, Something is good because it was designed to enhance us. So when someone does a loving act and you watch it, like coming down here, there was this really lovely um, young woman who gave up a seat on the plane for an elderly couple to sit together. Simple gesture, right? Wasn't, no one's going to alert the media. But I watched it and I went, no, that's, really, that's a very good act. And it was beneficial to the person. And truth is that which, when encountered, is reliable. Truth is, and reliable or reality is a big part of what truth is about. It's, it, it, it simply is. It, it works. You can count on it. You can trust it. That's what truth is. Um, and when we encounter it, we say, yes, like that really is Right. That really works. So when I encountered the person of Jesus, what was happening as I was reading the Gospels with my my friend Pat, I was encountering the transcendentals because Jesus is beautiful, good, and true. 
I didn't have the language, but that's what was really happening to my soul, was I was going, wow, the beauty of this. Every single little act. Uh, you just pick a gospel story and you'll see the transcendentals. Um, the woman caught in adultery. Okay, there's not a lot good about that. She was caught in adultery. She should have been punished. That was the law, that sort of thing. Right away you go, okay, that's not a good story, Jim. Why'd you pick that one? Well, can you find the transcendentals in it? In, in the encounter that Jesus has? In what he speaks to the accusers? Oh, okay, you're under the law, I get that. But you, you, okay, here's the deal. If you're without sin, go ahead and chuck it. Which of the transcendentals is he dealing with there? Truth. He's speaking the truth. And that's, what, that's why they walked away. He spoke the truth. And ultimately, his act of compassion was good. But notice he didn't just walk away. He said, and you know what? Don't do this again, he said to the woman. Because it's not good for you. Beauty, goodness, truth, it's everywhere. So we're designed for these transcendentals. And as I mentioned, uh, they're, they're not only woven into the human heart by God, but they actually have the power to lift us into something greater. The power to lift us into something well beyond us. One of the stories that really rocked me was the story of the cellist of Sarajevo. So in war-torn Sarajevo, where uh, in, in, one of, in, in modern times, and not that long ago, um, horrific war between the Serbs and the Bosnians and and the Croats, and, and the, I mean, if you just study it, it's really, hor- it's horrible, right? And it's religions and connected, it's not, a, it's a horrible epic in human life, and the things that happen, the incredible devastation, the bombing, the killing, uh, it's awful, right? There's nothing beautiful, good, and true about what's going on, but the, the, the story of this guy named Vidran Smelvich, he was a cellist in the symphony in Sarajevo, and so as, as it's just laid in ruins with all the bombings. But what, what Vidran did was he would put on his tuxedo that he wore when they did performances with the symphony. He put on his tuxedo and he'd take his cello without announcing it or anything. And he would go into some war, war-torn buildings, usually churches that had been destroyed by the bombings. He would walk into these churches in his tuxedo with his cello and he would begin playing music. And the people would hear it, and they would come in the midst of tragedy and suffering. They would find their way, and they would just stand there. No one spoke. They would just stand and listen. And he would do this over and over. He never announced where he was going, and that's because he was afraid that if, if he did, people would come in larger numbers, and there might be snipers and, and killing and that sort of thing. He just would do it. But I asked Adrian, I don't know if you can, but just the thing he would play every time, he played a number of things, but every time he did this, he played Albanoni's Adagio. So if you, can we just listen to a few moments of that?
So, what do you feel when you hear that music? Yes. There's an ascending. Yeah. Yeah. They, and, and you may not have, see, now you picked that up, but others may, who maybe not, didn't sense that maybe felt it. But yeah, what else did you, yes. The what? The tease of God. Say a little bit more about that. I'm intrigued by your phrasing. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. If you didn't hear the expression of God's heart in the midst of it, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, you were going to. I was going to say something similar. The pathos and pain and yeah. the environment, he was taking them into a transcendent experience so that they were able to find um, his sense of their spiritual state. Yeah, that's good. The pathos and the pain in order to find hope. Well said, mate. That's what you guys would do, right? Add that word. Uh, The pathos and the pain and moving to the hope, the teasing of God. Yeah, that's what he was doing. Uh, He didn't, you know, they tried to do a documentary about him. He wasn't interested. Um, They tried to do a film. He was even less interested. Um, and he won't even really talk much about it. But when he was asked, you know, why do you do this? He said, because the people are, even though they were starving, they had souls. And, and you just think about that. Because on, on, the, on the physical level, people were, they were starving because there wasn't any, you know, electricity and, and refrigeration and food was scarce. They were starving and they were suffering. And they were, they, they, Loved ones had died around them. That's where they were, right? But what Smailovich says, but they had souls. They had souls. And there was something within their soul, which is even greater you know, than the body, and I'm not denigrating the body, but there's that, this thing inside of us, and he was responding to that. He was responding to that hunger for something, to be lifted into that place. And I love that you use the word hope because hope by its definition is certainty in a good future. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is certainty in a good future and it's established by the resurrection. As Christians, we believe that the future is certainly Good, we have confidence in it, and that's because of the resurrection. And that's what they, they were connecting with, right? So God gave, gave human beings this incredible gift of creating beauty. And it lifts us and ennobles us and takes us to a place. And we're designed to ingest them, to take them in. That's why I talk about the metabolism of beauty. We take it in, not selfishly to hoard it, but really back to Andrew's uh, quotation of Robert Mulholland, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. We take in beauty, but we're also meant to become it and then to produce it. And that's, that's the natural flow of the transcendentals. We experience goodness, we become good, we do good. 
We take in truth, we become people of truth, who speak the truth, and we live in truth. So the transcendentals, even though we trace them back to Plato, who was, you know, well, I guess the guy at my university said he wasn't saved. Anyway, he's smart, though. But, but, you know, he was the first to just use the words to describe the transcendentals and say, this is what we see in the human person, is this ability. And so when I think about the, the soul metabolism, for example, of beauty, for me, um, there's, there's a little album I found on Spotify this past year, and I thought it was hilarious because uh, I was just sort of surfing around. But there was an album called Bach for Breakfast. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do that for a, for a couple of weeks. I just play that while I'm having breakfast. Uh, but I, I thought that was just interesting because of this idea of ingesting it. And of course, if you know any of the history of what Bach was about, I mean, he wrote thousands of pieces and it was almost all of it was for the church. But all of the senses can take it in. And, and so I, I encourage my students to try to widen the ways that you encounter beauty. And if you say, well, what is beauty actually? Well, it really is about a form. The Germans... I find, I'll probably offend someone who is German or speaks it, but I find the German language to be just not attractive. <laughs> it's so guttural. They sound mad. But anyway, it's just not very pretty. Like the French, that's pretty. It's, Italian can be pretty. German, but Germans, man, they know how to use words because their words are like so spot on. They're usually really long, like 100 syllables, but they get at it stuff. But, but uh, gestalt is a great German word, and it, it means... It means the coming together, well, we would say it's, it's um, the whole is greater than, than, than its parts, right? The sum is greater. That's what gestalt means. It means all of these elements come together and create something. So we listen to that adagio, right? And there's all of these notes played at the right time, in the right, the, the rhythm, uh, the tempo, all of, hundreds of elements come together to create that. That's what gestalt is. And the form is what we receive. Same with a rose. You look at a rose, you go, oh, that's beautiful. Why is it beautiful? Because of its gestalt. And you see the, the green stem and the red petals and, and the, the texture and the clarity and, and all that comes from it, right? And, and that's what it is. So when, we, when we're there, you know, we're encountering that. I think I'm going to skip over to the beauty of subjective thing. It's a huge argument. I, we can have it later. It goes on forever. But... Um, there is that phrase, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, which I totally disagree with. I, I, do, I think there's a measure of subjectivity within beauty, but when people use that sentence, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, they're really just sort of pushing beauty aside as being important. When you say, it's just, well, it's just subjective. It's not. Beauty's objective. There's subjectivity to it, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with that. There is subjectivity to it. Like, my, my tolerance for my appreciation and thus my tolerance for, like, bagpipe music is small. I like it for 30 seconds, and then it's just not great for me. But I have a Scottish friend who could listen to it for hours. So I get their subjectivity to beauty, but it's objective. And there is this incredible power that music has to transform. Um, Bono, music can change the world because music changes people. It has that power. Art has that ability. Uh, on, on the plane ride down, I watched this movie called Tolkien, and it's about the young J.R.R. Tolkien. It was really fascinating. I didn't know the early part of his life, his bio, but he was a part of a group when he was, um, I guess it was at uni. Uh, it's just after high school. But he, was, he, he and three friends were very, very close, and they were all artistic. 
And that, the slogan that they had is, art's going to change the world. Art's going to change the world. And of course, if you think about Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, what a massive, what an example of art. I mean, let's, let's just write a story about little people called hobbits. See if that gets any traction. Um, and one of my favorite stories about Handel is that he, when he wrote The Messiah, and the first time it was played, uh, I forget the town. I used to know the name of the town. But he, the first time it was played publicly, I mean, the people packed the auditorium. He was famous already at the time. And they packed the auditorium. They had this incredible sing, this group of singers and this soloist, the soprano. And it was this, incre- this performance. And the people, like, the, the ovations went on and on. And the next day, the mayor of this town, I don't know, Leipzig, I'll make it up. Anyway, the mayor of the town goes to see Handel where he was staying and says, ah, we want to just tell you how incredible the performance was. It's all people can talk about. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's astounding how much people love what you created. And this is what Handel said. Is that it? I was hoping it would make them better. I love that. I can't, I can't hear Handel's Messiah when we have it Easter at my church every year. I can't hear it and not hear Handel going, I really hope it makes people better. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, that's beautiful, but it's supposed to make you better. See, that's the transcendentals, beauty, goodness, and truth. And that's what we were designed for, is this interaction with it. Well, I'll stop there and, and see if you have any questions or comments before we, we go to what you all call morning tea. <laughs> That's fun. And just because it's fun, you do it again and call it afternoon tea. Because <laughs> one can't have enough of that. What would you call it otherwise? A break. I don't know. <laughs> Any questions, comments? By the way, I do have one quibble with John who said, I think you said that I speak funny. I talk funny. I don't know about that. So I've been trying to really understand, like, what, how, what is your, the way you speak? Like, what is, what's going on? And so I, there's outside of my hotel, a person was pulling up, and this, this is what I heard the guy say, right? And I was trying to really listen. Like, I'm going to listen to what he says. He says, pak your car over he. <laughs> and I went, wait, pak your car over he. And it hit me. You guys don't like the letter R. You just don't like it. The letter R is just, I don't know when it fell out of favor with you guys, but just drop it out. So park, well, now just a P-A-K, park, your C-A, ka, over here at the, at the something O. What's it called? Servo. Park your, park your car at the servo. Okay, so that was my little, uh, yes, Amy. Oh, Amy, Yes. Um, question. So, because I did a philosophy course and it was all about truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm. Um, but one of the things that non-Christians struggle with is when beauty isn't good. So, like when something is aesthetically beautiful, right. but it's not morally good. So, what do you think about that? That's a big question. And now, of course, it's a way to go, Amy. Way to step into a big one. <laughs> but. Uh, now, it, 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 there's a lot of ways to go with this. I've, I've thought about it. I've written, I've written about this in a book called The Magnificent Story um, that I think is out there. But anyway, so you might want to just read what I say about that in the book. But, uh, but I'll say this, that um, there, there, there is a kind of art 
that is intentionally trying to go against the moral framework. And it will try, for example, to be even offensive. And even something like, um, well, like Game of Thrones, like George Martin said, look, I don't believe there's a moral fabric to the universe. So that's why if you, the Lord, uh, the, well, not Lord of the Rings, sorry, Tolkien. Um, uh, Game of Thrones, the, the, good, the good characters die quick. Like they, and the bad people succeed. And so you, you think, well, what's going on there, right? There's, so there's, and yet still, there's, there's a kind of beauty in the stories and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and you see some examples in, in the arts where the artist is intentionally trying to shock or to make a statement against moral, a moral framework. And so it's a very good question. Uh, I, I just find, um, here's, here's what I would say. If it's genuinely beautiful, it never needs to argue to bring in, well, this is, now this is what Balthazar said. Balthazar, Hans, Hans Urs von Balthazar. There's a great name. Jim Smith, boring. Anyway, so Hans Urs von Balthazar, this is what he said. He said, beauty refuses to go anywhere without her two sisters. Genuine beauty refuses to go anywhere without her two sisters. So if you try to create something beautiful that is not in accordance with truth or goodness, good luck. It's probably going to sneak in. It's going to sneak in. And that's what Solzhenitsyn said in his commencement address at Harvard. He said, and he was really predicting postmodernity, which drives the question that Amy's asking. My, my answer is way too long for you. <laughs> um, what, what, what Solzhenitsyn said at the, at the commencement address, we said, look, we're moving into an age when truth and goodness won't have its power in the public marketplace. However, beauty will always have its way. Beauty will stretch into those regions that we call postmodernity, where goodness and truth are now thinking, well, they don't really exist. Beauty never has to argue. Beauty never argues for itself. Good question. Not certain about a good answer, but that's, that's a big one. Hi, uh, James. I'm just wondering whether you might have a comment on um, thinking from a, uh, our youth today, uh, the use of uh, technology, social media, um, beauty, goodness, and truth from a social media point of view um, seems to be, I suppose, creating the perception of these things. So rather than looking at a sunset, you're looking at the photo that someone took of the sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than acting good, you're watching a YouTube video about someone who handed over their seat on an aeroplane. Um, and heaven forbid about truth, uh, there seems to be a lot of um, uh, questions around truth. Just a, just a comment yeah. on that. Social well, media. yeah, no, I mean, the social media, social media is the current currency, and the technology is allowing us to do things that we never were able to do before. I mean, I can find a, uh, a lovely video about kittens and have it go viral in, in an hour or something. So humans ha- have a power <clears throat> available to them. I think it's just sort of fascinating to step back and say, what are we putting out there? And then how are people responding as well? Because the, the sphere that we live in is also, there, there's, people are spewing out really awful things in that space. And you know it when you see it. And people will often call it out. 
Uh, one of my best friends from high school uh, was routinely posting the most horrific things on social media. He, he would put stuff on Facebook so bad, Facebook took it down. And I just, I, remember, I, rem- I just sent a message to him. I said, what are you doing? Like, what, what's the purpose? Now, he's very angry. He's an, he was an angry, bitter person. And so he was using that space to, to dump his anger, right? So he sort of, but, but everybody knew it. Like, people, and I, the, the, before Facebook would take it down, people were commenting, like, what are you doing? Right? Because why? We innately know. We inna- you, the transcendentals have never gone anywhere. They're never going to go anywhere. And it's even back to Amy's question. You know, you say, say, what, say what you want. Uh, it, it, it ends up coming around to something else. And so I'll, I'll, as we close, I'm just going to go back to, did people, do you, was Game of Thrones big here? I just assume it was. How many of you hated the ending? No one's going to admit we're in church. You didn't watch it, right? Because it was not for Christians. But anyway, but what I thought was really hilarious is that when you get to the, to the ending, people are so mad because the ending actually had a moral framework, which is really interesting because if you watch the first couple of seasons, you're like, oh my gosh, this is... But then the end, the end of it actually was foreshadowing amazing stuff and you see the transcendentals emerge right at the end. The last episode, they make every man like... Now there's beauty, goodness, and truth. People are being good in the end. What's happening? Right? It doesn't have to argue.